Welcome to episode one of the Alec Hogg Show, a half-hour audio biography with our guests selected simply because they're interesting. The guest in this episode, our inaugural one, is Paulo Sullivan, the famous anti-corruption campaigner whose efforts have led to the exposure and ejection of many powerful establishment figures, including two heads of the South African police force, and a whole posse of once untouchable political icons. Like the other guests on this show, Paul's been selected on the basis that if his story were captured in book form, it would likely be a bestseller, which in reality is the case with him. Marianne Tham's biography, To Catch a Cop, written in 2014, sold extremely well. So, eavesdrop in on what follows, and I've got a feeling by the end you'll know Paul better, but also, most definitely, leave uplifted, inspired by his example. Paul, it's just good to be talking to you any time, but particularly now on this inaugural episode. And I was having a look through the book that Marion Tham wrote about you. Clearly, you were pretty involved in that. But why, given your need to stay in the shadows to a large degree, why, why actually have a book written about you in the first place? First of all, thanks, Alec. Marion wanted to write the book, so I thought, well, you know, what the heck? Let the people know what's going on out there. And, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't have any need to stay in the shadows. It's the criminals that I chase that want to stay in the shadows. And what I do is drag them out of the shadows. Where did it all start? I know you are from Ireland. Mm, so it started for me, I guess, when somebody broke into my car back in, I don't know, 1989, when I was a young immigrant to South Africa. And um, at the time, I was the general manager of the Eastern Province Building Society in Gauteng. And my PA at the time told me, oh, her husband's a policeman. So he came along. We had a whole discussion. He said, why don't you become a police service? So I did. You have to put in eight hours a month. I put in probably 10 hours a week. You know, during that time, of course, apartheid was in its dying years. Um, it, it was almost over. I moved to South Africa after the uh, vote to dismantle apartheid w was carried as a yes vote, um, I collected my permanent residence permit from Dennis Worrell, who was then the uh, ambassador in London. Now it's high commissioner there, but it was ambassador then because South Africa had been kicked out of the Commonwealth. They're back in it now. So, yeah, it's, it's been a long journey. I became a police reservist and I started training other people to do the same. And I became the head lecturer at the police training center um, in Houghton. And between 1990 and 2000, I think I trained 1,500 police reservists. In what? So I trained them in criminal law A, criminal law B, the new constitution, which came out in 96. But we started training people on the draft of it in 95. And then we trained people in police administration, you know, which is a very important part of policing. It's amazing how many people don't know how to write a sworn statement. So we trained them how to be observant, um, trained them about victims' rights and all that sort of stuff. So I did that for, 
I did that for 10 years. It's quite a jump, um, though, Paul, from the manager of a building society into teaching policemen how to police. Did you have much background in it? Well, I had because I'd been a policeman myself. I'd served in the police previously in the United Nations police and in the military police in the UK. So I did have a background in policing and I was pretty good at what I did. I, I, I was involved in counterterrorism and counter-espionage. So I was pretty good at what I did. And um, I just thought, well, let me use those skills in my in my new home, which uh, was then South Africa. And my old man used to say, if a country is good enough to live in, it's good enough to fight for. So I decided to fight for it. And, and my way of adding something back into the community was to do that. I mean, some people have different ways of doing it. Some people go and volunteer at the SPCA or they'll go and volunteer at the local children's home, you know. Um, what I decided to do was to volunteer in the police. Your old man? Well, my old man was a, a um, during the war he was an engineer uh, on in in the navy, in the Royal Navy, in the British Navy. Even though he was from Dublin, you know, a lot of people during the war in Ireland they went and they they joined um, the British forces because uh, it was the right thing to do. He was an engineer on the in the navy. After the war, uh, he became a colonial policeman. He was in Palestine, Malaya, and Hong Kong. Um, and then he went back to Ireland, uh, and he was in the Garda Shikana. Catholic? Yeah, naturally. Um, I think that's, you know, with a name like O'Sullivan, that's, that's, you know, you're born, you go up, you go to school. Well, in our case, it was national school. And the priests, you know, the Christian brothers, I ended up at a Christian brothers college. So, yeah, that's what we did. Um, I think that's the way of many kids uh, in those days. And for many South Africans, they, the Irish story of that era has been shaped by books of poverty and difficulties that the, that Ireland had. Did you have an easy or not so easy upbringing? Oh, no, we had it hard. Um, so uh, I had lots of brothers and sisters, and some of them passed away um, at a very young age through what was we call it consumption then of course it's now known by its correct name which is uh, tuberculosis uh, so consumption was the killer in in ireland in those days we had an outside toilet we had no electricity uh, the outside toilet was constantly moved because you know <laughs> that's the way it worked a big hole in the ground and when it was when it wouldn't take any more i guess that's what happened and i remember when the modern era started ushering its way in, they came with a truck and they delivered a, a new outside toilet where you had to walk up steps into the hut. And once a week they came and they emptied the bin at the back. So we then moved from having an outside toilet where it went into a hole in the ground to a, what, what I, I guess is commonly now called the bucket system. And then I think a year later after that, they came with wiring on poles and they put electricity into the houses. So, yeah, we, we certainly weren't living in the lap of luxury. It was a three room, the main room, which was the kitchen, lounge and everything all in one. And then there were two bedrooms with no running water at all. And how many kids? The most there were at any one time was six. Angela's Ashes. It'd be very similar to that, except we were in a rural environment. Angela's Ashes was in the town in the west of Ireland called Limerick, um, so which was probably about 50 or 60 miles or 
70 or 100 kilometers from from where we lived um, but we were in a rural setting and i mean <laughs> you know we had to arrive at school with clean shoes so we used to tie the, the the shoe laces together and just hang them over our neck and walk to school in our bare feet um because there were no proper way of getting to school with with clean shoes because you'd be walking along muddy and rainy roads so we used to walk in our bare feet and then when we got to school rinse our feet off and put our socks on and put our shoes on so that we wouldn't be in trouble for having dirty shoes at school paul when you look around south africa there are many people who live that way today in this country has it influenced you your upbringing in any way and in this obsessive mission that you've got to attack the criminal yeah, element. Yeah, it, it absolutely has, Alec, because the people that are engaged in corruption, they are stealing not from me and you. Of course, they're also stealing from me and you, but the main victims of their crime are those people that have to tie their shoes around their necks before they walk to school or don't have proper toilets or are using bucket system or shared toilets or have no electricity. Those are the real victims of corruption because the, the people that are corrupt are actually stealing the future of the country. And the people that get affected by it most are the poorest of the poor. If somebody steals, let's say, 100,000 rand from you or me, yeah, it's painful, you know. It's not something we enjoy watching or feeling. But if you steal 100,000 rand from somebody whose gross income for the year is 25 or 30,000 rand, you've stolen three years of their salary. And stealing things like, I mean, it's shocking, really. How on earth can you have a situation where young girls live in abject poverty, don't have money for sanitary pads, walk five or six kilometers to school in all weathers and walk home again, and along the way get accosted by sugar daddies and offered free rides and stuff like that, you know? And I mean, it's that type of thing that we have to deal with in South Africa. And that's why I've also been backing, and not a lot of people know that, but I've also been backing a charity called Kubeka, which puts bicycles into rural areas so that young female girls, and then they don't have to rely on some drive-by person offering them a lift and getting into a car with strangers. We have to do it. And the best way to do it is all work at it together. Getting back to the whole crime-fighting approach, you've been very public in this. You're well-known in South Africa and have been well-known for some years. Is that part of the strategy? What the criminals are most afraid of is being caught and being exposed. So when you expose them, I mean, you've only got to look at Celebi. You know, he was calling media conferences to tell the media that I was a bad guy, I was a foreign spy, and I've come here to destabilize the police. And Taklani did exactly the same. You know, he was running around all the media houses trying to put his version of events over instead of running the police force. So the best way to, to deal with these criminals is to expose them to public scrutiny. And then what does it do? It not only exposes them, but it triggers other witnesses to come forward with more damning evidence. And that's what happens in all the cases that we investigate. So we, we, we start with a case, and the minute it pops out of the woodwork that we're busy on a case, people write to us and give us more information. But what about personal security? Often in journalism, one meets people who tell you things, and you say, great, let's go on the record. No, I can't. I'm too scared. If you're living in a township and you want to be a whistleblower, 
you probably don't have the ability to protect yourself, so you have to be very careful. I have good security at my place, CCTV cameras, high walls, electric fences, and if anybody really has the balls to get over those fences and try it on, I've got my, my firearms. So it's not to say it can't happen. I mean, Kretcher tried to kill me six or seven times. When Kretcher sent people to try and kill me, the docket that I opened to have those people arrested was intercepted by friends of Paklani and Kretcher so that the guy would get away scot-free. There have been these attempts um, to kill me. <laughs> I believe in God, so maybe God's looking after me. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Is it getting any better, Paul? You, you speak about these attempts on your life uh, from a, a criminal who is no longer at large in South Africa. Is there any improvement? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, Radovan Kretcher now can't access a telephone. He complained bitterly, you know, in his various court applications, which all failed, that his family phoned him. They have a call once a month and they have to talk in English. The minute they start talking in Czech, the, the call is terminated and all of his calls are recorded by the prison service. So he's no longer in a position to hire people to come and kill me. But I mean, the sad part about it is all the people he hired, they all got caught and they all know that they now know that actually the money he was offering them, he never had anyway. So, you know, he was offering all these great amounts of money, but he's penniless. He doesn't have a cent. Are criminal enterprises run like businesses? Absolutely. And I mean, this is why you, you have this um, Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act and the Prevention of Organized Crime Act. So you have to have this legislation because these people do, they run their organized crime like business. And the proof of that, for example, where it comes to an armed robbery of a bank, they'll spend three or four days watching the bank before they rob it. They'll get up early in the morning. They, in some cases, they're far more industrious than some of our captains of industry are. I um, mean, you've only got to look at the tobacco industry as a classic example. I mean, here we had a lockdown, and within a week, counterfeit and unlawful cigarettes were the black market was booming. If the police seized 10 million rands worth, it was less than 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of what was manufactured and supplied out there. But what are they scared of? When you talk about a, to a captain of industry, he's scared of reputational damage. He doesn't want people to think ill of him. Is there something like yeah. that within a criminal enterprise, or do they just not care? Well, you see, the problem is they captured the criminal justice system. So they are pretty convinced that they won't go to prison. I mean, Kretcher was a classic example of that. Rather than Kretcher had lawyers working for him, and the lawyers were harassing me. They kept bringing interdict applications against me. Um, they wanted to, to prevent me from doing anything. But I fought them, and, yeah, look, eventually he lost, and he's in jail now, and he'll be there for the rest of his natural life. He will never step foot in the free world again. And it's my intention to make sure those that stole the future of the country get exactly the same treatment. You also, though, get attacked not not only directly, but through things that are sent to the media. Those kind of challenges. How do you deal with that? 
Remember, the people that commit wholesale crime, they possess millions and millions, in some cases hundreds of millions of rand. So for them, it's no problem at all to hire a few dirty lawyers and bring an application to interdict you. And they do it on a regular basis. Or they get people that are gifted with the tongue to write media releases or leak stuff to the media, which is false. They, I mean, in, in one case, they, they fabricated documents and gave them to people at Cusato. And Cusato did the media release. <laughs> and the fabricated documents purported to be stuff from me claiming to be a white supremacist. You know, fortunately, uh, all of the media people that got it, they looked at it and saw that this is absolute crap and they didn't, nothing was printed, you know. But it just shows you the lengths they will go to. I have to be alert to these situations. But, you know, at the end of the day, whatever they can say, I've been doing what I've been doing for the last 30 years. And I think... By now, people know that my heart is in the right place um, and I'm doing it for my country. Nobody's paying me. And that's the sad part. You know, people ask questions like, oh, where's he getting the money from? Well, excuse me, I've got my own businesses which are quite successful and I use my funds to do these things. And I'm entitled to do that just in the same way if somebody wants to go out and buy food parcels, which, by the way, we bought several hundred food parcels in March and April of this year and distributed it at our local um, informal settlement uh, in Innisfree Park. So, you know, at the end of the day, people are free to do what they want with their own money. And I've chosen to use my spare money to make the country a better place, especially for the poor. What business is Paul? I like to keep my business life um, reasonably under wraps, but I, I'm involved in, in property. My main business activity is property. You know, I have a forensic practice, which is enormously successful. I have some really good, talented people that work for me, and we do investigations. You never read about those investigations in the media because they're not investigations which have a public interest angle. Big corporations get defrauded by employees. They come to us. We deal with it. The property game, I have property interests in different parts of the world. Uh, which I obviously have had for a number of years. I have property interests in South Africa. In fact, just a few months ago, everyone said I was mad. I bought a house, a big house in Houghton. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's like 12 million or 13 million rand for it. And I'm putting in a planning application to subdivide it into seven plots and build seven uh, upmarket houses there, you know. So that's the sort of thing that I've been busy with. Um, in South Africa, I've been involved in construction of residential properties, business properties, and even retail properties uh, in the past. So I think in the last 30 years, I've probably built 1,500 houses in South Africa. At one stage, I bought 20 stands in Danefern when they were going for 99,999 rand each. And on some of those stands, I built houses. On others, I sold them at a profit. So, you know, that, the property business has been good to me. But the property business is also very long-term. And when you look at South Africa, most people today who do have money are looking to diversify, is a, is a polite word for saying getting it out of the country. And yet you're buying property. What makes you different? Yeah, let me tell you something, Alec. Um, I'm busy with a partner at the moment 
to build a hotel in Pretoria. 65 million rand. We put it on hold, obviously, because the tourism industry is going through a a bit of a wobbler as a result of COVID-19. So COVID-19 will probably deal a bit of a blow to my property business, but we don't owe any money to any banks. So everything that we own has been paid for with cash. So the the COVID-19 can't wipe us out. It can just devalue what we have. For those people that want to get the money out of the country, you know, that's their business. I have a little bit in the way of properties overseas. Um, Actually, not a little bit, probably quite a bit. But I have not had a need to uh, take any money out of South Africa. And in fact, um, the property that I bought December last year, January this year, I brought in 15 million rand to buy that property and to pay for the planning application and so on and so forth. So I, my money has been going in the opposite direction. I've been investing in South Africa. Why? Because, <laughs> you know... <laughs> You've only got to go and spend a few weeks in London and you realize, um, you realize why. I mean, I'm in London at the moment when, when you're speaking to me now, I'm flying back in a few weeks time and I can't wait to get home. You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. You have met and, and dealt with Cyril Ramaphosa. I remember the very famous picture in a local newspaper of uh, him being a graduate. Of on mm. uh, at the time that you were a police reservist uh, training, mm. uh, are you? Is he part of the reason why you are confident about the future of this country? Of course, politicians are politicians. Um, Cyril's not a natural politician. You know, you look at his background. Um, he was a, a, a trade unionist. What was he doing that for? He wanted to make life better for poor people, and I mean the exploited hard-working labor of the mines and other areas in the country where people work exceedingly hard in very difficult working environments and get paid an absolute pittance. And I think Cyril had the right idea. Let's try and improve their lot. So he was a trade unionist, which, you know, he followed on from that and became uh, prominent in the ANC. And thank God, you know, because he helped negotiate the peace accord which led to a smooth transition from apartheid to democracy. I would occasionally meet him at at, um, Wandi's place in Soweto in days when white people just didn't go into Soweto. They were too afraid to. Um, In fact, I started the first tourism bus into Soweto back in 1995 or 96. Um, Training civil as a police service was quite interesting. Because there I was giving lectures about the Constitution. And then, of course, to make sure they understood things properly, as you do in any training environment, you then ask the students questions. You know, what's your understanding of this and so on and so forth. And, of course, if somebody made a stupid statement, I would then turn to Cyril and say, well, what do you say about that, Constable? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, it was quite interesting to watch the dynamics in the classroom. And was he humble? Uh, very. He's always been a humble person. You know, uh, you can't take that away from him. Of course, he made good in business. So what? Some people are lucky that if you're in the right place at the right time and there's BE shares being handed out, who would say no? On the other side of the coin, he's, he's done a lot of good. And uh, he's got my support, certainly from a from the point of view of, of eradicating corruption. Um, and hopefully, 
you know, he'll clean up the ANC. You know, we've got to keep our fingers crossed because there's some pretty bad eggs in there. In fact, just this last few days, we've uncovered um, a member of the provincial legislature in KZN who's tried to enrich himself uh, by 100 million rand. So I guess that will probably blow out into the media soon. But, you know, nothing to do with PPE, more to do with a property transaction where this particular person got his 28-year-old daughter to form a company a week before a tender was advertised and then bid 100 million rand more than the next highest bidder and still got awarded the tender. Well, we put a stop to that already. But, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that's going on. Now, that 100 million rand, that comes out of the... The pot of money that's left out there. So if you take a hundred million out of that pot, it's a hundred million less you have for infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And for those kids who have to tie their shoes and carry them around the necks, as you said earlier. That's a tricky one. But what about the children that got washed away while they were trying to ford the river, which they have to ford every day? They have to walk through it on foot every day. And they got washed away during the heavy rains. Now, there should be a bridge there. And, and instead, the children get washed away, drowned. What a terrible thing to happen. I put that fairly and squarely at the footsteps of these corrupt politicians who've stolen the money that could have built that bridge. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Forensics for Justice. How did that come yeah. about? Okay, so what happened was we were involved in a case, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and we, we lacked the legal standing. In other words, we wanted to bring a court application, and the lawyer said, well, you know, who's going to be the applicant? I said, well, I'll do it. I'll do it. He said, no, but you don't have legal standing. I said, what do you mean? But there's corruption going on. I want to put a stop to it. He said, yeah, but what's to stop any other citizen just standing up and launching the application? I said, well, I don't know. So then he said to me, no. You need to have legal standing. So we had a big discussion. I decided, okay, we're going to form a non-profit company, a charity actually, you know, and we'll call it Forensics for Justice because everything we do is based on forensics. And I'll fund it. We'll get it off the ground. And its aims and objectives are to eradicate corruption. So the investigations we do, we do under the auspices of Forensics for justice. Mm-hmm. And are you getting support? Um, not as much as I'd like. I think people tend to support organisations like Outer and other organisations like that. We do have a certain amount of stuff on the website, but we've just got a simple process where you click on a button to donate. Um, it's been in my mind for a while now to try and set up a thing where people can make a subscription donation. But we do have, I think, in the last five years, we've probably had somewhere between three or four hundred thousand rand of donations. Um, but during the same period, I probably spent, I don't know, 10 or 15 million of my own money. So it would be nice to get the thing to a point where it becomes self-sustaining. However, having said that, I've said that if we're successful at what we do, we're actually going to put ourselves out of business. And that's what my real aim is, to bring about a situation whereby there's no need for organizations like us. You know, when the criminal justice system is uncaptured, 
you'll have good quality cops and prosecutors out there doing what I'm doing instead of me doing their work for them. Paul, what do your family think about all of this? You mentioned earlier you've got one child who works for NASA, another who's a doctor. That's a pretty prestigious careers that they've managed to carve out. But how about your other kids and, and your wife? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't talk publicly really about my family. So, yeah, they know what daddy does and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> they accept it, you know, and when times are hard, they'll even encourage me. So, yeah, I know I've got a good family. I'm very lucky. God was good to me. And what have you got up your sleeve? What I want to do is finish off some of these stories that we've started, which more especially to clean up the criminal justice system. As you know, I'm suing the state for 150 or something million. And my plan is to take that money and use it to put together a no-nonsense team of lawyers and investigators that will finish off what I've started. You know, Paklani and Celebi, and some of these other dirty generals. Over the years, they've appointed I don't know how many criminals into the police service. Now, how can you have effective policing and effective prosecutions when you've got dirty cops and dirty prosecutors out there? So we have a long list of people we've identified that we want to get rid of, and we don't believe that the criminal justice system will be effective again until those people have been shown the door. So we intend to get rid of them, and then hopefully when that's all done, we'll be able to say, okay, well, there you go. Criminal justice system now functioning, no need for me. How long might that take? I don't know, maybe another five or ten years, but, you know, I've been at it for a few years already, so another five or ten, if God gives me that time on earth, um, I'll gladly do it. Thanks for being with us for the Alec Hogg Show. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple iTunes. Until the next time, cheerio. Cheerio.